Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Bob Henley, who reports on leading political and economic issues for public radio, Salon, the chief leader, and other news organizations, has joined us on the show many times to discuss the news behind the news. And Bob has a new book out called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course in Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, published by Democracy at Work. I'm very pleased it brings Bob Henley back to our show now. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Leonard. And I understand that you're going to join us soon as a broadcaster on WBAI. Yes, some familiar air. I think that uh, I'm going to be doing, uh, kicking off the new uh, morning drive time uh, news magazine on Labor Day, Monday, and I'll have that slot. Uh, Of course, you know, I have a long history with Pacifica. I think I've been fired twice over some 25 years. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> well, welcome back. Thanks. Uh, the, the circumstances surrounding Governor Cuomo's resignation received a lot of media attention. Did we get the complete story? Well, I think that uh, the the drama surrounding Cuomo was happening on multiple levels. I think that in the long in the long uh, you know play here was a shift of the the state's politics in a profound way which is kind of good news for progressives and the women's movement. I think there have been some profound changes in the landscape that made what was acceptable in the past unacceptable. And I think the fact that we are in such an ongoing crisis that we can't, you know, we have multiple things going on that are going wrong and in the wrong direction. And so when you had someone who, uh, was putting so much of the energy into hanging on to power for the sheer purpose of hanging on to power, he really kind of became superfluous. Uh, I mean, just the the headlines that preceded us coming on the air, when you hear about, I you know, it's just such a definition of a stuck nation where you have a Supreme Court that is committed to preserving capital in the middle of a mass death event where it's willing to see hundreds of thousands of people thrown onto the street. And so in here in New York, we had a situation where the rent money that had been uh, put aside by the government, you know, Cuomo wasn't getting that out. I mean, everywhere you look, um, it wasn't just corruption. It was dysfunction. And so I think that that's, that's really the broader story. It's not put in that context. It's kept in, uh, the fourth estate keeps it in a kind of like personality driven trivialization and it doesn't look at the underlying erosion that's driving these changes. And the fallout continues. Tina Chen, the CEO of Time's Up, a women's advocacy group that supports women against sexual harassment, has resigned because she was somehow implicated with Cuomo. Well, in that case, it was a situation where they had been advising him behind the scenes about the timing related to how he did dealt with damage control, and so which he uh, said he and he's still denying that he did anything wrong. Well, of course, and that is, I mean, I think though that all you have to look at is just how Trumpian uh, Cuomo's behavior became. Remember, he looked for uh, Attorney General Tish James to do an independent investigation. He bought himself a lot of time. And then cynically, um, when it appeared that she was going to do exactly that job, 
he and his um, his operatives threw into question her motives. And this is exactly what we saw with what President Trump did. So it's really about alpha male power. It transcends ideology. And so it's not about party label. It's about worldview. And, and, and it's also about the way that this corrupt system has been running. I mean, the sad part is that the, the political culture is not going to continue the probe that's required. Because a deeper question here, the one that's more fundamental, is how was it that Cuomo presided over the closure of urban and rural hospitals throughout the state of New York, putting us in this precarious situation with this pandemic? I mean, these are the questions. These are the crimes against humanity. Not that his behavior behind the scenes with women is something that he should get a pass on. But, I mean, just the profound way that he used high office to benefit the concentration of capital and to protect real estate interests. I mean, you name it. And so that's the kind of thing that it would have been nice to see uh, this moment of, of change used to throw a spotlight on. But I don't think we're going to get there. Well, it seems like it's business as usual. Cuomo came of age in an era when both New Jersey and New York have had a hard time rooting out political corruption or, right. or making even convictions stick. And you cite what happened on August 12, 2004, when then New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy admitted to actions that amounted to a serious breach of the public trust. And yet he opted to stick around until November 15th, which robbed voters of the chance for a special election by handing the governorship to his fellow Democrat and then Senate President Richard J. Cody. He didn't apologize for appointing his unqualified girlfriend to a $110,000 a year job as New Jersey's Homeland Security Advisor or for trying to get real estate developer Charles Kushner, his biggest campaign donor, a seat on the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Wow. Well, the only correction there would be it was his boyfriend, Colon Sapel, who was a, uh, I guess his, his prior experience was a mid-level uh, young uh, Navy intelligence officer. Uh, in that situation, I think very artfully, um, Governor McGreevy came up with this issue surrounding um, his sexual identity, which was a mm. compassionate and compelling story. Uh, but then on the other hand, what he left out of it and out of that long apology he gave uh, that got national attention uh, was the fact that, indeed, it was Charles Kushner who had provided the working papers for Golan Sapel to get into the United States that uh, Mr. Kushner um, was able, of course, the father of Jared Kushner, uh, was doing what had always been done. In fact, this is, brings us right into the whole question about an ongoing criminal enterprise known as the Port Authority of New Jersey, New York, which both governors have presided over in New Jersey, New York. It was this uh, entity that was created with a compact by Congress in 1921 with the idea of the states working together. Hmm. And in recent years, it has turned into... I mean, as many people worked very hard there to deliver the services of the PAC train, the airport services, and so much. The people that work very hard. But the political class that runs it, the commissioners at the top, that is the ultimate pay-to-play situation. You get a position of the Port Authority uh, generally directly connected to how much money you've tithed to either governor. And so in the case of Mr. Kushner and McGreevy, when there was a little bit of scrutiny put on this appointment, uh, what ended up surfacing was that 
Mr. Kushner, who owned a bank, had been giving large contributions in New Jersey, which New Jersey has this obscure law that if you're uh, an owner of a certain percentage of a bank chartered in New Jersey, you can't make a certain size of campaign contributions. Well, that was really, and so you saw a scroll forward talking about bipartisan nature of this alpha male corruption. Donald Trump would pardon mm. Mr. Kushner. Even though Kushner pled guilty in 2004 to 16 federal counts, including tax fraud, witness retaliation, and making (laughs) false statements to the Federal Election Commission. Well, and and moreover, if you just look at something, and this is why these capers that happen, and and I think the anemic nature of the fourth estate, just the the fact that the, the media, for whatever reason, I guess they want to have access to the powerful, but they don't follow through. So... You could have no more high-profile scandal than Bridgegate. This played out in 2013 just by you know refreshing people's recollection. The Democratic mayor of Fort Lee um, was punished by the Christie uh, machinery that had control of the Port Authority because the mayor of Fort Lee would not uh, endorse Christie for re-election, so they decided to block uh, some lanes on the George Washington Bridge might I add, on the anniversary of 9-11, that's right, they used one of the uh, prime targets for terrorism, that would be the George Washington Bridge, and had the Port Authority police not protecting the bridge from potential terrorists, but using it for a political payback scheme. Now, what happened during that period of time is, what no one seemed to follow up. And I mean, there was some uh, colleague, Zach Fink, people know very well, was a great reporter. He did something about it. I wrote about it. This thing at the Port Authority would have required at some level, because the cover-up went on for weeks and months because Christie was running for re-election. Christie had tremendous help from the Cuomo administration during this time. It also, didn't the uh, police union, the Port Authority police <laughs> union, endorse his re-election? Well, and, and so this is the key part, is that the whole thing hinged on whether or not there was a traffic study, and that was the cover story, which the Port Authority Police Union, the PBA Union, that represents the Port Authority Police Officers, totally backed up, even though, you know, made it out, helped make it out of thin air at the instruction of Bill Baroni, who was a Port Authority executive and a Christie operative. And so, moreover, Pat Foy, who was running the Port Authority and was Mr. Cuomo's appointee, admitted in federal court during the Bridgegate trials to issuing a false press release. Hmm. And so what was his reward for admitting in court that he lied to the people through a press release? Governor Cuomo made him the chairman and uh, CEO of the MTA. That's right. Hmm. He gave him a promotion. And so that's how it's been going pretty much in New Jersey, New York, pretty much for my whole reporting life. Hey, you call Andrew Cuomo and Chris Christie two bully governors. During uh, Christie's tenure, didn't he and, and Cuomo have a, a kind of a compact to align themselves politically when it came to handling the Port Authority? They were tough guys that were pragmatic with a populist heart. You know, the kind of guy tells you to get the hell off the beach. You know, it was a kind of bipartisan scam. And as a matter of fact, um, and I, this is something that prior to... Um, Mr. Wildstein, and he was the person that was considered this Bengali of this uh, Bridgegate uh, uh, event. He uh, was at the, it was an operative, a Christie Republican type guy, a quasi journalist, was at the Port Authority, uh, basically pled 
uh, out on this, uh, turned uh, state's evidence, and then implicated, I guess, Bridget Kelly was the person who was the single mother of three, who was the aide to Christie, and Bill Baroni. So those are the folks that actually got in trouble overall because it was such a poorly executed uh, prosecuted case by Paul Fishman. It was overturned by the Supreme Court. But what was left on the table was a long list of unindicted co-conspirators, which had to have included the Port Authority and, of course, the police officers who facilitated it, because as Christie pointed out in a press conference, he didn't put the pylons to block the lanes. It had to be done by police officers. And all of that has been kept sealed. So to this day, we still have on the public payroll individuals who had knowledge and were part of the Bridgegate conspiracy. And so that's kind of like, like I say, that's part of the problem of this this corruption. And so we, it's all covered in personality, but we never get down to the essential truth. Now, at, at the criminal trial, um, three people testified that Governor Cuomo was part of the effort to cover up the, the real origins of the Fort Lee Lane closures after he'd had a conversation with Governor Christie, where Christie asked him, to tell his top official at the Port Authority to stand down. And yet, didn't Cuomo insist that he only learned about Chris, the, the, the scandal from what he read in the newspapers? Exactly. And so it's also important to remember that at that time, Christie was in a, a battle for re-election against Senator Barbara Bruno, and this story was blowing up. So it was critical for the Port Authority to... Um, kill the story and to try to take the energy out of it, which they did to the point that even when Senator Rockefeller in his capacity as a U.S. senator who looks at transportation was writing them for information, they were continuing to uh, say that there was an ongoing internal investigation, even though they know it had been concluded. So in essence, the Port Authority, the multi-billion dollar entity that we have been paying for in the form of tolls and and, uh, train fares, was used as a political tool to advance the um, fortunes of Governor Christie. And that was done with the support and knowledge of Governor Cuomo. And what's Christie standing in the Republican Party these days? Well, I mean, I think that he's uh, still on the country club circuit here. He can certainly get people to show up at things. I think that he is trying to figure out what this landscape looks like with Trump. Um, he is certainly, I think, going to help uh, uh, the Assemblyman Cittarelli, who is running against uh, Murphy in the gubernatorial contest. He certainly has the ability to speak extemporaneously in a way that gets headlines. But, you know, I don't know where he fits in in, in this Republican Party that's last uh, claim to fame was an insurrection. My guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is one of our regulars, Bob Henley, uh, who has a new book out called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? It's published by Democracy at Work. Now, um, can we credit Cuomo with uh, having done good things in, in terms of COVID? Because when you compare the, uh, the, the situations in New Jersey and, uh, and New York, the latest figures indicate that New Jersey's COVID infection rate is twice as high as New York's and Connecticut's. And yet, well, 
didn't Governor Murphy leave for his villa in Umbria, <laughs> Italy last week? He's back. Um, I, I think that it's important to go back and visit uh, that that period of time in, in uh, like February, March, when this originally happened, you know, well over 16 months ago. And there has been some fair critique that New York was slow compared to the response in California in terms of initially recognizing it. Um, you know, states have personalities, and I do think that New York has this mercantile streak where it just its its political economy holds on to the last dollar can be made. Uh, New Jersey's not, you know, much better. That's why both states were very sympathetic with slavery. And yet, can, uh, and yet, California right now has is recall has a recall vote of the governor, right, despite right. the way he's handled this whole thing. Now, I would say, in terms of looking back at what it was that Cuomo did that was essential, that was to the benefit of the public interest. The point at which we had uh, President Trump actually acting, uh, the federal government was a predator in that it was pitting the states against each other in the form of red states versus blue states. And actually, the federal government was in the process of trying to compete with the states to get basic um, personal protective uh, uh, equipment to the point that governors had to assign armed state troopers to make sure they could protect their supply. That was that was impeachable right there. I mean, forget the insurrection, but that that business of having the federal government actually pit the states against each other. And so, what Cuomo did was by having Murphy and Lamont and Wolf come together with a compact at the very worst of it. That gave some coherence, and it gave people a sense that the the various governments in the region, echoing kind of like what happened with the colonies versus Britain, right, had come up with a committee of correspondence, if you will. That was important. I do think that we wouldn't have been able to at least weather that, that first wave without that. But it's instructive to see how it fell apart and how once the governor, Cuomo, thought that his career was really in jeopardy and he couldn't hold on to the job, he began to use loosening the economy and going along with the idea of opening things up, right, as, as a way of kind of holding off the political hostility that he was dealing with because of the growing scandal around it. And so what you've seen is a disintegration, really, uh, where the governors have been outdoing each other up until very recently. I do think you see a little bit of a turn now with the, uh, with the Delta variant. But, I mean, we had a situation where, uh, I mean, one of the great mistakes in this, which is just underreported, was a decision by the CDC on May 5th over the objections of frontline unions to lift the universal mask mandate for the vaccinated. And Governor Cuomo and um, Mayor de Blasio, within a very short period of time, followed that. Governor Murphy held on for a, a, a little bit because the unions were saying, this is a bad idea. We should talk about that, why it was a bad idea. Yeah, why, why, why were unions were opposed to uh, protection? Well, no, what they were opposed was the idea of getting rid of the universal mask inside. You may remember that we've gotten to a place where the guidance was in supermarkets and in interior retail and public settings to wear a mask. Then the CDC came up with the notion that if you were vaccinated, you could go without wearing a mask indoors. Mm -hmm. This was based entirely on a voluntary system. 
at the time, the nurses' unions uh, said, this is going to do a number of things, all of them bad, and retail workers and people that work in meat processing plants, their unions were saying the same thing. You have no real way of knowing who's vaccinated and who's not. You've now put the burden of determining who should wear a mask and not on the workers. You're also lifting this mandate when massive swaths of the country were below 50% in terms of vaccination. By the way, communities of color, you remember them. They're the ones that we said, oh, COVID's exposed the great inequities in our healthcare system. We're going to be extra mindful of that. Yeah, right. And then they pointed out that it would open the door to variants because you had the situation where so many people were unvaccinated. And Leonard, that's exactly what happened. Now, getting back to uh, Murphy's trip to Italy, <laughs> he went there despite uh, the U.S. Department of State's suggestion that Americans reconsider travel to Italy due to, to COVID-19. And won't, isn't uh, it likely there's going to be a kind of a nasty uh, gubernatorial race coming up in New Jersey? Um, Jack Cittarelli, his uh, Republican right. opponent for governor, uh, is, is running TV ads that are attacking Murphy, especially for taking that trip. Well, I guess the problem here is that um, Cittarelli is had this very difficult relationship. At first, he was a never-Trumper, and then was kind of like that, you know, Liz Cheney wing of the party. And then, as it looked like uh, Trump was in ascendancy and was going to hang on, Cittarelli kind of migrated into that direction. And, of course, the Murphy people are making much of that. And then also... Cittarelli has created a campaign that is trying to deal with the considerable energy that's around folks that are don't want mask mandates and don't want vaccine mandates. So being that he wants actually less government intervention when it comes to the pandemic, it's hard for him to make much of the fact that Murphy decided he had matters well enough in hand to take a vacation with his family. Is it likely that we're going to see New Jersey uh, go through a similar thing is that we're seeing in Florida and Texas? Well, of course, the issue here is that what we're seeing is a, a jump in cases. We have seen over a thousand hospitalizations. That's the first time that's happened in a while. Yeah, it's, it's double the, the infection rate of New York and Connecticut, as I mentioned yes. earlier. Why is that? Well, I think that as much as the state is densely packed, you have a very big range in within the state in terms of vaccination. So while the state itself is on, on the high end of all the states in terms of percentage of people that are vaccinated, you have places, Monmouth County, uh, places that are uh, tend to be more, um, you know, where the where it's like under 50%. So you have this, this kind of dramatic contrast. Um, and then also, I think that um, one of the things that we're seeing, it's hard to tell if it's going to hold, but we're not seeing the same level of severity nor death yet. But, of course, death is a lagging indicator. The uh, One of New Jersey's counties, Middlesex, has been running ads for itself on television. Does it see itself as unique in the state? Well, I think that they have an idea that um, there has been this this notion that as the city defined as New York City, there were open questions about real estate and about 
whether people wanted to work in the central city. And I think a place like Middlesex that has proximity sees it as an opportunity for, you know, uh, um, people that are looking for a location to consider it. That's been going on for a while. So is the uh, is Bridgegate over because uh, it, it was a, a weird situation where uh, the New Jersey State Attorneys General and New York uh, County prosecutors are reluctant to bring uh, cases in in our region corruption cases uh, they 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 rely on the federal government. Well, initially, yeah. I mean, the thing is that it's played out because the the theory of the case that Mr. Fishman put forward kind of fell on its face in a spectacular way with the, basically the the Supreme Court throwing them out. And then, of course, Mr. Wallstein was then able to um, have it overturned. So um, I think that the question becomes, and this is true, New Jersey has an attorney general who is uh, appointed by the governor. And so that creates a, a problem. And then on the New York side, you do have uh, county prosecutors that are elected. And so it's kind of created this blind spot where it, historically it's been up to uh, the federal U.S. attorneys uh, to have the stomach to bring these corruption charges. And, and to some degree, that means that there's an awful lot that really goes um, undealt with. And at the same time, you also have an erosion in terms of local news coverage. And we've talked about that on this a lot. So you have this kind of falling away of prosecution of public corruption and then also a lack of reporting granularly about what exactly government is doing. Hmm. Most of the coverage of uh, New Jersey news that I see on the local news has to do with a car go, you know, hitting hitting somebody or crashing into a storefront and things like that or a fire. Um, we don't hear much about the the political things happening in New Jersey. Well, and I would say there is some, I mean, uh, New Jersey um, has Spotlight News, which is a nonprofit linked to um, the uh, the PBS affiliate that does bring New Jersey news and it's worth looking for. And, and of course, you know, we do have WNYC has some New Jersey stories. You do see Matt Katz has done great reporting on immigration issues that are centric in New Jersey. But uh, one of the things that's happened is that we've talked about this before. You have uh, like Gannett, which owns the Bergen Record. They own one in five American newspapers, right? So you have these big chains. And the model that they do is pretty much get rid of or reduce the footprint of local reporting and then fill it with aggregate material. And so that's kind of what we, and so we've seen a kind of die off of local reporting. And so that is uh, that is just a great opportunity for corruption to get to uh, to take root in that situation. Because uh, the uh, the local newspapers are, are disappearing, right? And so there was some effort, and there's some residual effort to have like patch and online things. But generally, um, what's happened is you've seen Facebook and 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 often now governments themselves are promoting themselves, or you'll see. You just don't have what I remember doing throughout my career, which is the local reporter who goes to the police station proactively and presents their press pass and looks to see what the police have been up to. And so what's happened is, as a consequence, we have citizens have to step up. I mean, the the young woman that stepped up to videotape to the benefit of the world, what happened with George Floyd, like 
it's that kind of thing. So that infrastructure has has deteriorated. And so uh, and then also at the same time, you've had um, a real shift in the broadcast licensing requirement. I mean, so much of how things were decided in terms of news and public affairs was driven by FCC licensing. And with the slip and deregulation into cable, it's now turned to a situation where there really isn't very much public affairs requirement. And as we've seen, you can have um, broadcasters that have FCC licenses um, have programming that absolutely you know promotes things like uh, the insurrection. And so uh, there used to be a requirement that you would have news and public affairs program. But what's happened is through the deregulation of the media, the FCC, the actual airways themselves, which belong to the public, now have become a property right for multinational corporations. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're back with Bob Henley, who uh, reports on leading political and economic issues on this show and a number of uh, publications and has a new book out called Stuck Nation. Can the United States change course on our history of choosing profits over people published by Democracy at Work? And Bob, as we mentioned earlier, you'll be doing a, uh, a Monday morning program starting on Labor Day. What what will you be covering there? Well, that's going to be basically a state of the labor movement um, in in the region and in the nation. Uh, it's also going to be part of a, a launch of um, a, a kind of Monday morning news magazine. Uh, in that hour, I'll be one of the uh, one of the hosts on, on Monday and that will it will shift and rotate throughout the week. Getting back to the news, New York on things that you've reported on, New York City controller Scott Stringer reported recently that the city was unprepared for the coronavirus because it hadn't planned to handle a potentially severe infectious disease outbreak, lacks an inventory of personal protective equipment, and didn't effectively engage its Office of Emergency Management. Who is to blame for that? Does, do we blame de Blasio, or is this something that goes back a long time? I think it's structural, and I think that you have to go back certainly to the Bloomberg era. Uh, I think that, you know, there's been Laurie Garrett, the journalist who's written so much about this, has really flagged what ha- – this is something where the federal government has a key role here. But, you know, and the Obama administration, to its credit, did put together a workbook and a plan. But the fact that it's a city with um, well over 8 million people was still prepared – you know, is is an important question. And the problem here is that you're in the middle of it still, right? And so you do have to ask yourself, you know, it, it can be counterproductive to start finger pointing right when you're triaging an ongoing pandemic. But one of the things that is just not getting enough attention, and, and this is, is just how we were uh, set up for this pandemic by 
a couple of generations of starving public health. Uh, Dr. Celine Gandroy, I've interviewed, uh, who has this, this great resume, which is grounded in having privileges of Bellevue and, and administering to people that come through public hospitals and, you know, uh, an international expert on these things, um, just pointed out to me that coming out of the Great Recession, um, we just never built back up the cuts that happened in public health. And so this has been a slide in public health that really can be traced going back to the last math death event, 1918-1920-21, where we had this kind of awareness, oh, oh gosh, oh, the health of myself and my family is directly related to the community. And so we spent a march of like, even after the Second World War, this consistent march of advancing community-based public health. The nurses in schools was an example. And then we retrenched all that. And then you saw a situation where well, we had circuit school nurses where they could get in a car and maybe drive by 10 schools in a day, and we called that good enough. That's kind of what happened. So uh, this is the thing. So you can't just look at the lack of disaster planning without examining the daily disaster that is American healthcare. I mean, this really, um, when you do something like interview uh, FDNY-EMTs, the folks at Local 2507 and the officers at fdny EMT 3621, and you talk with them about what it's like to have the responsibility of picking up people that are in their last breath and then trying to get them, do what you can in them, with them in transit, and then get them to the place where there's a hospital. When you dig down and look around what happened just in Queens, you know, well, the nation's and the world's imagination was grabbed by Elmhurst Hospital. But Elmhurst Hospital was decades in the making because there were several hospitals around there that just disappeared. So can you imagine if you're a career EMT, how hard it is, because you're driving farther and farther to get people the help they need. That's been America. That's what's been going on. We don't even have a universal national standard. You don't even have to have a local EMS department. Did you know that? No. So that's when we talk about infrastructure and everyone pats themselves in the back about, well, we got the bridges funded, this funded. We don't have something as basic as EMT requirement across the country. Now, Mayor de Blasio told reporters he hadn't seen Scott Stringer's report, but he defended the city's response, saying there's no way to fully understand a global pandemic until you're in it. Well, <laughs> I would say that um, we had a dress rehearsal. Uh, with a better outcome, of course. What happened with Ebola uh, was something where, in that case, it was New York City and Bellevue Hospital and the very talented doctors and staff at Health and Hospitals Corporation, uh, which brought public confidence back. Because remember, when Ebola was starting to play out, the hospitals in Texas, they were having a situation where they had a breach of containment. They had medical staff that were actually caught up in it. Oh my gosh, it was so small scale considering to what we know now, right? Like we, I guess that the guardian in Kaiser health says close to 4,000 uh, healthcare professionals have died in this pandemic. Globally, it's believed to be over 115,000, but in the case of Ebola, it was New York city that got its arms around it. We had that doctor that had come that was infected that managed to, um, emerge and, and was was better and, and beat it, but it was that response that was filled with competency at that time, rather than patting ourselves on the back, that might have been a good opportunity to say, 
What if it doesn't go so well? What? How have the the unions? Because you you write a lot about unions. How have they addressed these issues? Haven't there been some objections from some unions uh, that uh, about mandates? So this is the the concept of a union uh, is that it ha- it's a it's a challenging tai chi. They have to represent the collective and the individual, and so that means that if you have an individual that may have a um, situation where taking the vaccine is a contraindication because of a pre-existing condition or an individual that has long-standing religious objections to that kind of intervention, you're required by law and by some might say morality to represent the interests of that individual. That said, um, unions, particularly ones that are in the, in the public sector have an obligation to be concerned about the public health. And so this whole question about vaccines and about mandates is something, you know, there's, there's a range here and it's important to review what that is because it is being glommed onto by our media calliope machine uh, and not really giving people, it's, it's having people take sides without being informed. What Mayor de Blasio is proposing, of course, and is now it's put into, is going to be what's playing out is the idea that, you have the option to be tested. If you don't want to be vaccinated and you're a public employee, you can be um, you can be tested or you can opt to be vaccinated. And then there are cases where they are drilling down to make the vaccine absolutely in some settings and some circumstances around the country. In New York State, in medical situations, in congregate care facilities, they're making it that it's going to be mandatory with no testing option. The The problem with all of this is that you really need to work with people and work with the unions prior to announcing it. I'll give you a, a case of point why when you it, it develops adversarial where you're commanding people to do things, it doesn't work out well. I interviewed Sarah Nelson, who is the president of the uh, flight attendants union, CWA. They have 50,000 flight attendants, 17 different carriers. That's a lot of different entities to work with, a lot of different personalities. The range of compliance for flight attendants for vaccination ranges from 70 to 90%. And the 90%, the places with the highest buy-in, this should come as no surprise to a thinking person, are the carriers that have worked with the union to address these issues and issues and concerns before they roll out the policy. That's not what's happened here in New York City. You had a situation where the Municipal Labor Committee, which represents all of the uh, public unions, sat around for two weeks, wrote three letters to uh, Mayor de Blasio to try to start the process of negotiating the specifics. Because here's the thing. Doing something like this has a lot of moving parts. There are questions about, do you do this on the way to work? Is this something that, where do you deposit the testing? Who, for instance, and this is an important point, does a private third-party contractor retain all the genetic testing data? I mean, that's something that New York Teachers for Choice asked, and the city ultimately had to say, we don't know, and they made sure that it wouldn't be passed on or sold as a commodity. I mean, this is not something to just be, you know, when public unions are sticking up for this, this is about human rights and determination and also the public health. You uh, pointed out, to Mayor de Blasio that according to NICOSH, the, the Nonprofit Worker Safety Labor Supported Group, 
250,000 essential workers experienced COVID and were sidelined by it, and, and another 150,000 had asymptomatic exposures. Um, is, shouldn't that be a concern? Well, this is where this market capitalism has been most pernicious because this has been just ignored entirely because everything that we everything is programmed to keep the economy going at any price. And so they don't want to, you know, people just uh, are not coming to terms with the long term implications of COVID. And so that NICOSH study basically shows that, you know, you can have a situation where you have an exposure, you test positive. Um, unions and um, worker uh, comp attorneys will tell you that if you had that positive test, and even if you didn't miss work, even if all you have is a positive test and you had no symptoms, you need to make sure that you file paperwork where you work. Because what we're seeing is that there are long-term consequences, even for those folks who had a mild case. So the fact that we're, for instance, not talking about universal health care now just, just goes to show you how upside down and stuck the nation really is. Because you have a situation with it's just 400,000 people, and this was a, maybe a few months ago, 400,000 essential workers now have some long-term potential complication going forward. That, Leonard, is one state. So imagine... Hmm. Out of the 30-some-odd million American infections, how many folks are going to have long-term consequences? That means universal health care is a matter of national security. And since uh, the, uh, the essential workers have uh, contact with the public, the ones who, who chose not to do anything to protect themselves or to protect the people they're dealing with, uh, uh, does, are they disqualified for workers' comp? Well, so now this is the thing I'm very familiar with is that, first of all, we have a, a patchwork of worker comp laws that vary state by state. And so what happened is the, the more likely case, and this happened very early on, you had many uh, hospitals and places, healthcare places, where they didn't have sufficient PPE and they were even told, uh, people were told to actually um, unlearn everything they ever learned about basic uh, clinical procedure. N95 masks, for instance, are supposed to be only uh, worn for a clinical procedure and they're disposed of. Wait, is your well, dog objecting to being asked I, to, pre- I don't think to so. wear a mask? I think he's working his issues out. What can I tell you? I'm sorry. We're just, we heard the so, dog. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that happened early on is that the CDC – and this is uh, the nurses. Nurses union really tried to get the people to address this, but nothing came of it. Um, early on, the CDC said, forget what you've learned in med school and nursing school. Uh, n 95 yes, that's right. Generally, you're supposed to dispose of it after each clinical encounter. But for the purpose of this pandemic, because we have a shortage, you're going to take that mask with you back and forth to work for a week. At the time, the nurses predicted that two things would happen. One, they would get sick, their families would get sick, and some of them would die. And the hospitals would become a vector for the disease. And both things happened. Now we have hospitals that are actually not, um, even though this aberrant uh, guidance came out and hospitals were unprepared, when people like respiratory therapists and nurses have been getting COVID and are trying to fight it, get back and convalesce and return to work, 
They are fighting the worker comp claims. And that's the struggle. That's something that needs more attention. In fact, I was on a, a call, a Zoom call, with Senator Duckworth and uh, Congressman Nadler uh, and Congresswoman Maloney. What's in the works, actually, is something like the, the Droga Act that would be used for um, the 9-11 World Trade Center Health Program and the Droga Act for the, the essential workers. Because this is the clear and present challenge right now before America. You're talking about potentially millions of individuals and their families who are caught up in the poor response to the government where they went to work and the country betrayed them by not being prepared. You're, my guest today on Let It Lopate at Large is Bob Henley, who, among other things, has just published a book called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, published by Democracy at Work. Um, didn't uh, Mayor de Blasio tell you you should ask New York City's Commissioner of Health, Dr. David Choksi, any questions that you might have about COVID? Oh, yeah. Well, this is part of the this is the, the ritual that we do. I mean, I will give the mayor points for having regular press briefings. And I'd say that reporters, you probably get a question every third day, every second day, depending on what's going on. But, yeah, I mean. They are, that, that is one thing that they've been able to do is provide access to the media. Well, David Chachki is uh, constantly on television. Um, what did he tell you that he hasn't said all those TV ads in which he folds and unfolds his hands? <laughs> well, I think that um, the problem here has been that anybody who's involved with uh, the public health has to deal with the fact that Americans have real problems with uh, dealing with, uh, you know, evolving situations. And that has, this is what this has been. So you have a situation where science gets a sense of what they think is happening, and then they decide to present it based on like, how they think the public's going to respond. And so that really becomes a problem. And so we've seen this, for instance, where we've had the breakthrough in infections that have happened for people that have been vaccinated then find that they themselves uh, are, are reinfected. And so what ends up happening is you have such a politicized atmosphere that people use the new developments that have happened in science as a way to prove their underlying political point, not to inform um, the, the public. And so that's what we have here. And, and you also have a situation where the major media outlets, the news media outlets, are about are their fundamental uh, economic engine is about confirming the bias of the individuals who've tuned in. So if you have a news media that is not about challenging and enlightening, but about patronizing and reassuring, well, your your public debate is going to really suffer. So, we so Fox and MSNBC are equally culpable. I, no, I think they're machinery for um, – I'm going to give you an example. Um, the scale and range of debate on major issues – and just look, for instance, at, at Afghanistan, this, this slow-moving catastrophic event that's been bleeding out for 20 years. The, and all the media does this, so the, particularly the corporate media, with the exception of outlets like Democracy Now! Uh, and occasionally public radio, but even NPR falls into this. They go back – 
to ask the very same think tank generals who pushed the war over and over again to diagnose what went wrong. And so as long as that's, I mean, so you don't hear an analysis that points out like, oh, so we bet trillions of dollars that our biggest threat was Islamic terrorists in countries far away. And oh, we almost lost the country to Confederate people from the United States, many of them law enforcement. We didn't see that coming. Like, sorry to go off on Lewis Black like that, but that, you know what I'm saying, Leonard? Like, where do you hear the awful truth? Where we've been headed in the wrong direction for the last 20 years. And what's happening now is not the mistake of Joe Biden, because although he played a role certainly in facilitating the military industrial complex, but in the decision to actually say now's the time to leave. I mean, the American people have to hold themselves accountable that we let this go on in our name for 20 years. And now New Jersey Congressman Jeff Van Drew has called for President Biden, Vice President Harris, and Speaker Pelosi to resign because of what's happened in Afghanistan. Right. And so that's another thing. I've been working on a piece that looks at where the uh, New Jersey House delegation has been on this issue, because if we're going to hold ourselves accountable, we should hold our representatives accountable. And when I went back and looked, there was a pivotal point where Dennis Kucinich, congressman, presidential candidate, now candidate for mayor of Cleveland, um, he proposed legislation to have the U.S. troops withdrawn and invoke the Wars Powers Act back in 2011. And what we had in New Jersey, I think it was Pallone, uh, Rush Holt, and um, uh, Congressman Payne uh, were part of the, I guess, 90-some-odd Democrats and a handful of Republicans that voted to do that. Um, and so that was back in 2011, maybe like a trillion dollars ago. And so this question of how we got here, and it's important, for instance, to, to look at whose interest was it? What were the, the multinational corporations and defense contractors that benefited from all of this? Like, we need something like the church hearings to go into the and examine how it was that the United States for 20 years was on a robopilot when it came to a war that set off the worst refugee crisis since the Second World War. We don't have much time, but I want to ask you about uh, what, uh, well, this question, despite Mayor de Blasio's call for the full return next month of the 80,000 city workers who've been working from home during the pandemic, hasn't the surge of the Delta variants led some leading private sector employers to put off return dates, in some cases until the beginning of next year, and Wall Street firms like BlackRock and Wells Fargo delaying full returns until October. Facebook, with 4,000 employees, will wait until January, according to the New York Times. Google extended its work from home policy through October 18th. Um, so we're not about to get back to normal for quite a while. No, we're not. And so what's happened is originally um, Mayor de Blasio was trying to, you know, came up with the narrative that public employees had to set the example by going back first. And so remember, for, you know, the overwhelming number of city workers, they've been in the field all along repairing fire engines and doing all the other work, you know, out of 330,000, roughly 80,000 work remotely. Uh, and so the idea was that those uh, remote workers would return, particularly in places like lower Manhattan, where they're very much part of the foot traffic, and that the private sector would get the idea. But then Delta... Um, has really thrown this into a loop and created a situation where 
public employees are hearing that private sector employers um, who may know something that the government doesn't, right, um, are, are putting this off. So it undermines the confidence. And remember, this is the same workforce um, that was told uh, on 9-11, after 9-11, by Christy Tywood and the EPA that the air was safe to breathe in lower Manhattan when we know, we know it was not. In fact, more people have died from the occupational exposure and the lying by the EPA than died on the day of the attacks. And 50,000 people have long-term health consequences. And, Bob, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. You can read Bob Henley in Salon, the chief leader, and other publications. Uh, and in his new book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, published by Democracy at Work. Also, hear him on our show and soon on his own show on Monday mornings, beginning Labor Day, September 6th, uh, what, 7 o'clock in the morning? Yes, sir. And thank you so much for being on our show again. It's always a pleasure. Now, go figure. Well, <laughs> that, I'm, I'm sorry to say that that brings us to the end of today's show. I'd like to thank Leonard Lopate at Large, executive producer Jesse Lent, and Alive engineers Reggie Johnson, James Ursay, and Max Schmid for all of their efforts throughout the week. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access all of our over 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. You'll also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And there are links to our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. As you probably heard, WBAI continues to experience major financial difficulties due to the pandemic. So we are asking everyone who isn't already supporting the station to go online to give to wbai.org or to call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 to become a member. Why not support the programming that you turn to to learn about the latest important books or documentaries or topics that you haven't ever thought about this deeply before? Do it for us. Do it for WBAI. Do it for other listeners who aren't currently in a financial position to be able to support community radio. And one very helpful way to contribute is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, by contributing $10, $15, or, or whatever level you're comfortable with a month. But however you donate, the important thing is that you take that step and make a tax-deductible contribution of any amount by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org because WBAI is 100% supported by our listeners. We don't take money from anyone else. Please may, be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large from all of us on the show. Thanks, and have a great weekend.